Welcome to episode 22 of Battle Rhythm, the Canadian podcast that tells you what you need to know on security and defense. My name is Stephanie Von Latke, and along with my co-host Steve Sademan, I'm happy to share this new episode which focuses on Arctic security and defense. Our guests are emerging scholar Mathieu Landriot, who talks about media coverage about the Arctic, and one of the CDSN co-directors, Professor Andrea Sharon. She's a NORAD expert, but covers a range of topics linked to Canada-US defense cooperation in this episode. First, though, is my weekly update with Steve, which has little to do with the Arctic and much to do with, surprise, surprise, the global response to the pandemic crisis. Hey, Stephanie, how you doing? I'm doing well, Steve, given the circumstances. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. I'm currently scheming out how to get some flour since I've been saving up my flour for my weekly pizza allotment. Otherwise, we're, we're doing pretty well in Ottawa. How are you managing with your boys? Uh, they're doing fine. The long weekend, I think, did everyone a lot of good. But I'm not as brave as you are because I'm not planning a trip to Costco anytime soon. Well, I have an, almost an infinite supply of bandanas thanks to my life playing Frisbee. So developing a mask is not a problem for me. In fact, I'll, I'll double up and have two bandanas. But it's interesting how, how quickly things things move as a couple of, you know, it wasn't more than a week ago, I think that people were saying no masks and now everybody's saying masks. We're learning and adapting to this new reality. Before 7i started recording, we were talking about the various events and that we're trying to plan for the Canadian Defense and Security Network and how we have to adapt those. And this is going to be a real challenge because we really don't know when this is going to stop. I think one of the most important things that happened in the past week was one of the uh, press conferences where the prime minister said things about summer and then he said use the phrase first wave so he was definitely trying to set expectations of this thing's going to last a while and it's going to come back and rebound upon us time and time again as as uh, we have to reset relax our social distancing and when things get better then as as things rise up we'll have to intensify them again and, and that's going to be problems for everybody obviously but for us as scholars trying to organize events it's going to make it challenging because we'll always have to have either a plan b or a willingness to postpone things so we're going to be figuring this out in the weeks ahead yeah i think we're going to be canceling postponing organizing canceling again we'll be into that cycle of uncertainty where we just have to embrace the chaos and just adapt as we go along with the information that we have i know that for myself and Irina Goldenberg, the co-director for the Military Personnel Node, we've just decided to wait five weeks before making any decisions or announcement about a postponed event because there's just no point right now. And one of the things that we are trying to do is we're going to have a, an online event in a couple of weeks to bring the community together to talk about some of the issues facing the government and seeing if we can brainstorm any ideas. So we're going to try to leverage the technology that exists. We're learning how to Zoom in large numbers and we'll figure out if that works. And as we go along, we'll try to figure out the kinds of things that work and the kind of things that don't. Uh, a lot of us are starting from scratch in a lot of this stuff like teaching online was not something that any, most of us were trained to do. And it's been a very much a trial and error process. And I've apologized to my students for all the errors and all the trials they've had to put up with. And it's going to get challenging in the fall if we have to keep on doing this. Absolutely. At least 
the beauty of our podcast is that we've not had to change anything about how we do business. <laughs> it was online from the beginning since I'm at Queens and you're at Carlton. So we've had to do this remotely from the get-go. And most of the interviews we've done over the phone or via Skype. So there's been very little change to our own battle rhythm on this podcast when it comes to recording our banter and the actual interviews. Yes, I'm very thankful for that. That this One of the things that I've been trying to do with my own family, and I think you've done with yours, is you know have weekends be different different than the week so that way the days don't all completely melt into each other and I think having us do battle rhythm every two weeks helps to give my own life a little bit of rhythm to it yeah but part of the advice we're seeing out there is is not to be too focused on the news and I'm very conscious of that because of the impact it can have on on the children right you open the news you open the radio and that's all people talk about and so if you constantly have that in the background as a way of I think really impacting our, our mental health in significant ways. So I've really tried to minimize my exposure. I go to the to the written media mostly and and then try to have those conversations when with, with my kids when they have questions, but otherwise minimize that background noise. So of course, we're going to spend most of our podcast today talking about COVID and its exactly. implications. <laughs> so this is the predominant security news of our day. And so since we're talking about defense and security, we, we would be irresponsible if we didn't talk about this stuff, that it's clearly matters in shaping things. You know, the most obvious story about this is that the United States not only essentially lost the usage of one of its aircraft carriers, the Theodore Roosevelt, but it's created a major sieve mill crisis within the United States where you had the acting secretary of the Navy fire the captain of the Roosevelt because he had shared an email that he was sending up up his chain of command, but a little widely than more widely than uh, asking for help because there was a, an outbreak and not, it wasn't just an outbreak that was in the crew, it was partly in the reactor people, the people who are trained to handle the nuclear reactor on the on the ship. And if those people go down, then the ship it becomes non-functional. So he really did face a crisis. And now there's something like 500 sailors have it. He has it. And one sailor died uh, yesterday from this disease. So the idea that this pandemic is, is a security matter is most obvious in this case. So what's your civmel take? Maybe you can even link that to the principal agent <laughs> theory, as you often do. Well, the key thing here is that there's two things going on here. There's the stuff that's going on within the U.S. Navy, and then there's stuff going on between the Trump administration and the U.S. Navy. So the U.S. Navy, particularly the Pacific Fleet, has had a real hard time the past couple of years. That, if you remember, there's been a, a number of collisions that took major American warships out of service, where there was essentially basic failures of sailpersons, sailorship. I don't know exactly the right phrase, but the problem has been that they've been so focused on a high tempo of operations that they've been having sailors and and officers are so tired that they've failed in their jobs. A basic job of a ship is not to collide with other ships. And one of the challenges here was that the Theodore Roosevelt was being told, you must stay at sea uh, because you're vital for deterring conflict and being ready for war. And the captain of the ship was basically pushing back saying, we won't be ready for war if I have a major outbreak on my ship that will lose the ability to fight. And so if we act quickly to get these sailors off the ship and clean up the ship, then we'll be better able to then be ready for whatever is we're needed for. His superior said, no, you got to keep on operating. And ultimately, Crozen was right about the situation because they can't really operate when they have 500 mm. uh, sailors who are, who are having this disease. It, you know, We think about 
social distancing. You can't social distance on a naval ship. His problem with his superiors was something that was fairly typical and one of the things that had been fairly broken about the Pacific fleet. However, the Trump administration made it worse because they have this acting naval uh, secretary of the Navy who decided not only to fire the captain without any kind of investigation, they could have clearly put time off. He was resisted by the chief of naval operations. He was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Both said, no, let's don't fire this guy. Secretary, acting secretary of the Navy, fired acting secretary of the Navy, Moldy. I'm sorry, I keep on confusing his name with Moldy. He acted precipitously, potentially because he feared that Trump would lose his temper. And he fired this officer. And not only did he do that, then he flew out to Guam, where the ship is based right now, spending a quarter of a million dollars to do so, to have a 15-minute speech where he trashed the captain. And the audio of that is online. And you can find, you hear the sailors essentially expressing their puzzlement in various sailor-like language. <laughs> And language. I mean, in the tape of, of Moldy's speech, you hear the background noise, the background noises of these sailors who are very upset. Mm. Yeah, rightly so. Rightly so. I mean, this captain basically chose his crew over his career. And then this this acting, and again, I can't emphasize that enough, acting Secretary of the Navy comes by and trashes him. It went very poorly and it led to ultimately submitting his resignation after he came home and then had to go into quarantine because he exposed himself to COVID while he did this stupid flight. And so this speaks to larger problems within the American administration because you have a lot of these positions within the Department of Defense filled by acting people. Now, Moldley was uh, confirmed to be, I believe, under Secretary of the Navy, but he wasn't confirmed to be Secretary of the Navy. And the Senate is a busy enterprise. And so they tend to take more time, take more seriously their oversight efforts over people higher up in the chain of command. And they never anticipated having long periods of time where important offices are filled by acting individuals rather than people who are confirmed for that job by the Senate. So very clear that Moldy was never really the right guy for this job. This is not the only situation where this is going on. And we're going to see more bad decisions and more waste of time and effort and destroyed careers because the Trump administration tends to like to have acting people as opposed to confirmed, uh, vetted, approved people, because it gives them more flexibility, gives them more power, more influence, and it weakens the ability for the Congress to engage in oversight to do their job. So that's the real principal agent problem is that one principal is undermining the ability of the other principal to engage in oversight. And it's not just this case. And I think there's a lot of other stuff going on that we're not aware of because it's not quite as visible as an aircraft carrier being taken off the line uh, in Guam. And of course, it might happen again to other ships or aircraft carriers. And there's an investigation that's ongoing about this whole thing. So it's, it may be not the last we're hearing of Captain Brett Crozier. I, I hear that it's not off the table that he might be hired back. Yeah. He, I mean, he got fired from the ship. He's still an officer of the Navy. He hasn't been discharged from the Navy. And it speaks to a difference between the United States and Canada, because it does seem to be the case that our chief of defense staff, John Vance, has been more aggressive on this of being more directive. One of the things that's different between the United States and Canada is, is the, in the United States, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff doesn't have as much power. There's a new secretary of defense who doesn't feel very confident in his position. And so he's basically left up to officers, senior officers to decide whether their unit, their ship, their command will deal with this stuff. And so you see Marines still getting haircuts. You still see a lot of recruitment activities going on. Whereas at least what I think we can tell from Vance's messaging is that recruiting efforts have largely frozen. And so you're not having to assemble large groups of new people in spaces where they're likely to transmit diseases to each other. So I think uh, I think Canada's handling this better in part because of the structure of our institutions allow to have a more centralized approach. It's so much smaller as well, which facilitates uh, quick decisions like the announcement to mobilize 24,000 CAF members for COVID response and I assume other things uh, that 
might not go away, like responding to the flooding. So here it's both regular forces and reservists, and they're on standby to help civilian authorities respond to whatever provincial governments might call on them to do. That could be delivering supplies, uh, enforcing quarantine orders, so, so we'll see. And we're also seeing movement of troops around the world. So there was an announcement that the Canadian Armed Forces that were in Ukraine returned home. So what happens to them is also they they come back and they also are on quarantine for 14 days and are medically monitored to make sure that they are safe. And in Iraq, we've seen personnel move to to Kuwait. And so things are a bit more certain, I think, when it comes to operations in Iraq. Uh, obviously, they're already quite uncertain given the worsening security conditions on the ground. But now COVID has added to the difficulty of planning activities in that country. So what we have seen with the sort of drawdown of of forces there and the suspension of activities is a resurgence of ISIS and ISIS being more active. Yes. So this is one of the big challenges is that you can't really do a lot of training right now because uh, you're bringing people very close together. You're exposing each other. So everybody's coming back from training. That's also, you know, happening in Ukraine. It's happening in Iraq. And the difference in Iraq is, is ISIS is launching more attacks. You noted in our, our pre-conversation that there is variation, though, that not every conflict is getting worse. Well, in Yemen, uh, it seems that the UN's call for a global ceasefire was heard. Uh, There's a new ceasefire in Yemen after the first COVID-19 case was recorded. And here we're talking about a unilateral two-week ceasefire called by the Saudi-led coalition. So, you know, we seem to be just going through bad news and maybe this is a bit of good news if it can be broadened and if the the rebels can accept the the ceasefire and then uh, there can really be a halt in hostilities as the nation deals with COVID-19 and maybe that can open the way for for some kind of political settlement who knows but in Afghanistan on the other hand talking about this variation the peace deal seems to be floundering so the peace agreement that had been negotiated first between the U.S. and the Taliban which centered a lot on the release of 5,000 Taliban prisoners now Mm -hmm. seems to be falling apart over this very issue so this was supposed to be somewhat confidence building but the Afghan government who was not party to those talks in Doha where the U.S. and Taliban were talking in February has been quite resistant to, to this. They think that just releasing 5,000 Taliban prisoners is, is reckless and that this needs to be staggered and condition-based. So things are not really going well on that front and, and the Taliban have again sort of walked away because uh, they, they want to see the release of those prisoners up front. Yeah, I think I saw something about the Taliban saying that if there was any COVID in the country, they would stop fighting, but I'm not sure how credible that is. I do think one of the challenges of having the Afghan government not involved in the peace talks is that they don't really feel bought into it. The other problem, of course, is that the Afghan government is a mess itself where you have two different factions mm-hmm. creating parallel governments. And you see the United States trying to lean on both Ghani and Abdullah to get their act together and act as a single government, threatening to reduce support. And this has been an ongoing problem after every election in terms of, of getting the opposition to buy in, the losing side buying in. This time, for all of the warts and problems that the Trump administration carries forward, at least they have a credible threat of, oh, if you don't do what we want, we'll stop the money and we'll, st- we'll br- pull out of our, our troops. Other presidents couldn't really make that threat or at least not make it very believable. On the other hand, the Afghans may say, well, you're going to pull them out anyway, so why should we listen to you? We'll see how that plays out. But 
Afghanistan reminds me of NATO since the two were intertwined for so long. There's a NAC defense ministerial tomorrow. That is the North Atlantic Council's defense ministers are meeting, I assume, virtually. Well, the meeting is mostly about how the alliance should respond to COVID-19. And of course, there have been responses already, but I think this is a good opportunity to take stock of what's happened and to coordinate further across a range of issues. And because COVID-19 intersects with so many other NATO-related issues, I think we can expect quite a wide scope to this meeting. And you're right, it will also be happening via video teleconference. So first of all is, I guess, the emergency COVID response. Uh, So this Mm -hmm. involves allies providing medical equipment where it's needed the most. So we've seen situations where allies are airlifting medical supplies around the world. But perhaps more importantly, adapting existing operations to the the virus from Kosovo to Afghanistan. We just talked about Afghanistan briefly, but different operations are adapting in different ways. So whereas in Iraq, the training activities seem to be mostly suspended even if the advisory role is still somewhat active. In Kosovo, you see that day-to-day activities are still running their course. So you're seeing K-4 soldiers walk around and doing their patrols, but with masks on. So you see there's been small adaptations, but not necessarily you know, a huge halting of the day-to-day activities. Uh, the other thing that NATO is concerned, obviously, is disinformation. These days, this disinformation has been wrapped up in the pandemic crisis. So it's not the first time that you know, NATO complains about disinformation without explicitly naming Russia, but really meaning that, you know, it's tired of, of uh, Russia attacking on, on various issues. And this time, of course, the issue happens to be the pandemic crisis and, and the response. And of course, this disinformation is also coming from, from China. So I think you'll see that NATO and the Secretary General are really careful about not naming Russia and China, but they are concerned about disinformation coming from those two countries, especially. And then, I don't know, but down the line, when an actual NATO summit happens, defense budgets will be scrutinized (laughs) once again, because after fairly impressive upward trajectory of uh, NATO defense spending, this is impossible to sustain, uh, given the economic crisis that we're facing as a result of, of the pandemic. So not only should we expect further increases in defense spending to be stopped, but, you know, coordinating the, the expected decrease in defense spending is going to be something that's going to be on the agenda. But I'm not saying that's on the agenda for the defense ministerial, but just down the line, it seems like sure. an inevitable consequence of, of what we're facing right now. Well, the bright side of a global depression is it's going to make everybody's defense spending look good because, remember, it's all about 2% of GDP. And everybody, if your GDP gets smaller, then your defense spending looks bigger. If there's lag in cuts, but the immediate uh, GDP hit, which is going on right now across the world, it's going to make everybody look better. Uh, and then, of course, Trump will take credit for it. And maybe he should since he helped to make this pandemic worse than it had to be. But, I mean, that's a, going back to an old issue I harp on is that the 2% indicator is a crappy indicator for a variety mm-hmm. of reasons. And one of them is if you've got a decline in GDP, you look good. And that that doesn't mean you're doing better on defense readiness. doesn't mean anything about you're doing better on defense. It just means that you took your economy took a hit. Likewise, if your economy goes really fast, but your defense spending doesn't keep up, it doesn't mean that you're you're not spending more on defense. You're not being more ready. It just means that your economy is doing really well. So uh, we always got to remember 2% of what? 2% of GDP. And that means stuff. It, has, it means that our measure is flawed. But you're right. It's obviously going to be a co- topic of conversation. The different defense ministers are probably not going to want to talk about it. They're less likely to talk about it, but certainly next summit, it's going to be an issue because this is the one thing that Trump seems to understand about NATO is that there's collective action problems that countries do spend more and some countries spend less. Yeah. Uh, And even if uh, Trump isn't reelected, this is an issue that U.S. defense secretaries or secretaries of state tend to 
point out. Yeah, although I think that if Trump is, loses the election <laughs> in the fall, I, I think that Joe Biden's mission will not be about crapping on the allies about spending not enough, particularly in the aftermath of a pandemic and a global recession. Just don't think that that'll be the, his major talking points for the first two or three summits, uh, in part because he'll want to also distinguish himself from, from Trump. So we'll see. We'll see if there is an election. Yeah, well, there'll be a lot of mending if there's a change in the administration, a lot of mending of these alliance relationships. So we talked about NATO, but I think we should also talk about other organizations. I suggested that for the next episode, we need to take a closer look at the World Health Organization. The WHO obviously has been a huge influencer in this whole crisis and providing guidance internationally on how to respond to the crisis. But there's also been a lot of blame mm-hmm. placed on the WHO, for instance, in its treatment of Taiwan early on in the crisis. Of course, Taiwan is not a member because China objects to it. But apparently Taiwan mm-hmm. had reached out early on and asked questions about the outbreak, especially when it came to human to human transmission and the WHO failed to respond. And so the, the blame game is going on, whether it's leveraged at international organizations, whether it's leveraged China or the United States, that seems to be the predominant trend rather than more international collaboration uh, centered around the UN Security Council. So I guess the UN's performance in all of this has been a little bit disappointing. Yes. I mean, the, the challenge, of course, is that China and the United States are at loggerheads in a lot of these issues. And that means that you have them potentially vetoing each other at the Security Council. And that's not going to go away anytime too soon. And Russia has been playing its role, favorite role as troll. Yeah, we mentioned You mentioned before about how China and Russia are exacerbating or amplifying their disinformation campaigns. And so they wouldn't want to have a lot of cooperation at the UN because that would undermine their efforts to, to try to engage in the blame game and in pushing things forwards in a particular direction. And the United States, on their hand, is led by an administration that's very hostile to multilateralism in any way, shape, or form. So they're not going to have any inclinations of using the UN in any any way to deal with this. I do think we will need to try, well, sure, going to try to get an expert on the WHO to talk to us for our next podcast because uh, it's not something that either you or I studied very much. We could talk about NATO till the dogs come home, cows come home, somebody comes home. But we can't talk too long about WHO because it's just what we're getting from the news. I, I do think one of the things we always have to remember about these international organizations that's fairly general is that you know, they operate as much as nation states allow them to operate. They only have so much resources. They only have so much authority. And if China decides to lie to them, if the United States decides to cut the money to them, then the WHO doesn't have a lot of uh, power or discretion. And one of the things that does seem to be the case in this crisis is that in past crises, the WHO worked hand in hand with the uh, U.S. Centers for Disease Control on these things. And that was not really operative in this crisis, in part because the Trump administration has been cutting the CDC and in part the CDC was living in fear of Trump. You know, if they got out in front of Trump, then they would face his his wrath. So that natural partnership that has helped to deal with previous pandemics just wasn't there. Our international organizations just can't operate on their own. They need the support of countries and particularly of the most powerful countries. And that wasn't really the case in this particular crisis. And that's something we're going to have to live with for the near future. Yeah. So not much coming out of the UN Security Council. But one thing I did want to mention, Steve, is on the UN peacekeeping contingents, because we were talking a lot about NATO operations. And of Mm -hmm. course, even though nothing really happened at the UN's 
Security Council in terms of concerted action or international collaboration, there's still a lot of UN peacekeeping missions going on. And there we're, we're not seeing so much uh, the suspension of activities. We're seeing a suspension of rotations so that UN peacekeeping contingents that are in theater will stay there longer. And even if they were supposed to come home, they'll remain in the host country to provide security and medical services. So it's quite interesting to see those contrasts between how different organizations are responding and how it's affecting their their day-to-day activities. Mm -hmm. But of course, here too, at the end of the day, if countries want to recall their troops and bring them home, they can go ahead and evacuate their troops. So we might see that happening as well. But there are more than 95,000 military, police, Mm -hmm. and civilian personnel deployed across these UN operations. And uh, that's something that we can monitor as well. The situation in Mali might be concerning. So 15,000 peacekeepers are deployed there. And Mm -hmm. there have been two reported cases of of COVID within MINUSMA. So a direct consequence there. Yes. And and one of the interesting things for us as scholars, but one of the tragic things from the standpoint of the world is that the bad actors out there that were the reason why these things exist, that why the UN peacekeepers are out there, why we have uh, militaries doing various things, is that some of them will take advantage of the situation. There's no doubt about that. And so this raises a larger question of readiness. Our forces, you know, the military could say they're as ready as they ever were, but that's clearly not the case because all the training cycles are off, all the exercise cycles are off, that we do these exercises, we do these training cycles, so that way, when needed, the militaries are prepared to act and act efficiently, effectively, and with less risk. And the less you practice, the less you exercise, the duller the knife edge gets. I mean, this is the rhetoric they usually use. And so I can't imagine that the forces of the democracies of the world, particularly Canada, is, is as sharp now as it was a year ago because they're simply not operating the same way. Mm-hmm. Although they, they will get lots of exposure to domestic operations over the summer. So for some troops that were supposed to go on courses or, or training this summer or full-time summer employment, uh, maybe there will be opportunities to deploy on some of those domestic operations. And, and that's experience, even though it's not part of the regular training or, or deployment cycle that may have been expected, this will provide some kind of professional opportunity for, for many troops. It'll provide them a professional opportunity, but in terms of dealing with our various adversaries, I'm not sure this is the kind of experience that's that as helpful as the other stuff that's usually going on. But I, I think you raise a good point that they will be out there, they will be doing things, and so they will be exercising some of their muscles, some of their doctrine, some of their behavior, so that way you know, they're not, they're not going to be spending the entire crisis in barracks. They're going to be out there doing things. So they're not going to lose all their edge, but it's it's going to be a real challenge for them to try to be able to do all this stuff and, and still be ready for the next thing, whatever, whatever that next thing is. Yeah. But I agree that if you've been trained and slated to go, I don't know, to South Sudan or Iraq or the Baltics mm-hmm. on, on a mission that you're disappointed if it gets canceled or if it gets uh, postponed indefinitely, because this is definitely something that one looks forward to in, in career. And when you get that opportunity finally to deploy on a mission, obviously you you want to be able to have that opportunity and and, and go and, and contribute. So I think that, you know, this is affecting posting cycles in a lot of ways. It's affecting career trajectories. It's affecting training and readiness. But this is something that everyone is facing. So ultimately, uh, we'll see in a year's time whether the normal cycle resumes its course or whether this is kind of a permanent disruption we all have to get used to. Good. And up next, we have Mathieu Landriot for Emerging Scholar segment and a feature interview with uh, Andrea Sharon, who's also part of the CDSN. Well, Matthew presented his research uh, from a distance when we had our capstone conference uh, in March, just before things 
lockdown. He works on media and public opinion and, and its impact on or its coverage of Arctic security and sovereignty matters. And Andrea Sharon is the one of the directors of our oper- of our operations node of the CDSN. And so we talked about some of the events that she's run and the research she's doing on Arctic and the NOR- NORAD situation. Broad coverage. And, and then we'll conclude with a new segment we're having. I don't think anybody wants to hear me complain. So instead, I'm going to talk a little bit about R&R, what we can do for rest and relaxation, which is the books and movies that I, I'd recommend for people to get through this thing. Fantastic. I look forward to listening to that. All right. Well, it was lovely talking to you. In two weeks, we'll have a new episode. We'll see how things evolve over the next two weeks. Matthew, uh, Landro, welcome to Bowerthem. Matthew presented last year at the Inuit Studies Conference, which was organized by the Observatoire de la Politique et la Sécurité de l'Arctique, which was in turn organized by the by INAP, the École Nationale Administrative Publique. Is that right? Yep, Administration Publique, yes. I apologize to our listeners for my bad French. Can you tell us a little bit about what you presented last year in that capstone at the Canadian Forces College? On March 10th. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So uh, what I presented was a culmination of my research on uh, media coverage of Arctic sovereignty and security. So my main research question or main interest is how the Arctic or our Arctic security and sovereignty is described in the Canadian media. So basically, I'm going back all the way to the uh, Manhattan crisis of 1969, collect evidence. I had about, I analyzed around 1,200 journalistic uh, reports, articles, and I analyze frames. I analyze what are they talking about, so that's part of agenda setting, when they talk about the Arctic, and how do they present it? So how do they talk about Arctic security and sovereignty? Some of the main observations I can draw from this high volume of article is that usually there are other variables that comes into play when the Arctic is on the media radar. Often confusion, by government in their political messaging, in how in their communication, scramble, confusion between ministers, like in the 1969 crisis, play a huge role into making what could have been a benign episode of Arctic sovereignty into a crisis that captured media attention, made headlines for months, really. I look also at more recent episodes or period of Arctic activism to figure out that at times, Uh, The nature of the reporters, the identity of the reporters has a lot to do with how those uh, issues are covered. I gave you the example of Prime Minister Harper's uh, annual Arctic tour. He would go uh, in the Arctic about uh, every year from 2006 to 14 in August, September. Most of the coverage of those tours were extremely traditional stories about Harper, often rehashed announcements or commitments, pretty standard coverage of what Canadian forces were doing there in terms of military operation. Basically, a journalist wouldn't go outside the box, do some field reporting, wouldn't interview locals for the most part. When you look at reports and journalists that would cover those tours, it had a lot to do with who they were. It was mostly national correspondents, so journalists working on the Hill, covering national politics, mostly covering 
partisan politics. So they had pretty standard pieces about how this would impact the kind of national kind of mm. national partisan politics game, but not a lot to do with the Arctic. So they again, they would rehash a lot of the old cliches about the Arctic, about the volumes of oil and gas supposedly present in the Arctic, mm-hmm. and going for standard statistics that when you look a bit a bit deeper, don't really hold or not judge as rigorous or serious by any serious observer. Have you seen changes over time about Russia slash Chinese threats to the Arctic, climate change, or is this stuff that's sort of been more or less consistent? I observed the evolution and how Russia was framed and was portrayed. Of course, we see Russia drop the flag at the bottom of the Arctic Ocean. <laughs> yeah, on August, uh, was it July 31st, uh, 2007? Incredible spike in coverage, bold claims about the start of an Arctic race of an incredible extent, just to fizzle out. The race wasn't that intense and the competition wasn't that intense either for a long time. So yeah, it started with the Russian threat after this event, but after a few years, it kind of deflated because there was nothing more substantial to support that narrative. And then we saw a lot of the fear of China, the rise of China in about uh, 2013, 2014, and focusing on China. What I observed, though, was not so much on the uh, focus on specific threats as much as a focus on specific dynamics. When we're talking about Russia in the late 2000s, so 2007, 8, 9, it was mostly about Arctic sovereignty. And the keyword mm-hmm. Arctic sovereignty would come back, peaked in 27, 2007, 2008. Starting in 2010, however, we saw the mention, the term Arctic sovereignty decrease exponentially. So going down 10 times, okay, from 2007 and 8 to 2011, 2012, 20, uh, 2013. For very good reason, the Arctic didn't go through an Arctic sovereignty crisis. It was not about stealing land from one Arctic state or another. And Russia was not so much a threat of sovereignty as much maybe as a challenge and obstacle in Arctic governance. We take decisions, rules. The emergence of the rise of, kind of China or that China threat in 2012-2013 didn't find any resonance with Arctic sovereignty because China was not after any land grab or any sovereign rights in the Arctic region or in the Canadian Arctic. So it was mostly about Arctic governance. How do we incorporate new players like China? So what type of rules of norms of standards we put in place to incorporate those new players that are not from the region, of course, that are non-Arctic states? That's true for China is the same for European Union members that were not in the Arctic, so all non-Arctic states. Uh, So we saw an evolution. Now, Arctic sovereignty in the past about three to four years is not on the radar screen whatsoever. Question is, is it the media not paying attention to this or just the events not being there to kind of spur a new sovereignty crisis? The liberal government is not so keen either on using those terms. So often the media will follow also the lead of government and governmental messaging to a great extent. It seems to me that, that I do think that part of this is a Harper versus liberals would, would make a huge contrast since this has not been a priority for this government. I guess going forward, what is your research? What are you looking at these days? What are you going to be doing in, in the next couple of years? I'm trying to push uh, into social media. So this study mm-hmm. is was much more on traditional media, newspapers, mm-hmm. TV, CBC, CTV, Radio-Canada. Of course, nowadays, it seems like a given to reorient 
towards social media, Twitter. Sure. I'm trying to map with colleagues the Arctic putosphere. So mm-hmm. where how raising awareness works on Twitter, on Arctic issues, um, how issues are covered also in global outlets, but on social media platforms. How are also Northerners or Inuit people are connecting or trying to promote their messages using social media. And I think it's one of the thing, one of the phenomenon that changed the, the most is that the audience is able to interact now. The audience does now have a voice. And so it comes with possible disinformation, possible phenomenon going viral that are maybe a bit further from the truth or less filters in yeah. way how we, we consume that information. So in that direction, I'm also interested into covering, uh, analyzing with colleagues how uh, the Canadian Rangers are, are covered in our in our media. I think it's a fascinating phenomenon. It's often a military group that is covered in the media in certain ways. So to see how, what type of coverage is done on the Canadian Rangers, how are they portrayed? Often they are, pres- by some observers anyway, are commentators, they are presented as kind of an example of our weakened capabilities, kind of a plan B, a cheap plan B that we have instead of buying the kind of expensive hardware that comes with controlling and surveying the Arctic. So to see how a mostly indigenous contingent is presented in the media through time. So from 2000 to 2019, so over two decades of media coverage on them. And I definitely think there's going to be a lot more work in in this area. So I appreciate you taking your time to chat with us today. Thank you, Stephen, for the opportunity. Today, we're talking with Andrea Chiron, who is one of the co-directors of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. The uh, operations theme, which has been focusing on things like the Arctic, NORAD, NATO. And she recently had an event in Washington. Andrea, welcome to Battle Rhythm. And and please tell us a little bit about the event you just had. Thanks very much for the invitation. Uh, We had an event that had two purposes. The first was to mark 80 years of the Permanent Joint Board on Defense, which is a binational board made up of Canadians and Americans whose mandate is to advise both governments on the defense of North America. But the second mandate of this workshop was to really get down to questions of how permanent and how joint is, in fact, the PJBD. Their meetings are held under secrecy. There is no communique that they issue. And so the only insights we have to the PJBD are through subsequent government action or from former members of the board who are at liberty then after the fact to perhaps provide some insights. And so we had a remarkable group of past and present co-chairs of the Permanent Joint Board on Defense, academics, military representatives, and students, including two from West Point. And so what were the big surprises or takeaways or things you learned that you didn't know walking in the door? I have a better understanding and appreciation for the PJBD. And I think when one is always on the outside trying to look in, one tends to undervalue exactly what they're trying to do because there are no splashy reports that come out of the PJBD. But what was reinforced time and time again, especially by past chairs, is how important it is 
for there to be a forum that is away from the spotlight. There is some advantage to people not fully understanding what the Permanent Joint Board on Defense is. But being away from the spotlight, still having access to the ears of the Minister of Defense and on the on the American side, or, or sorry, on the Canadian side, it's to cabinet through the Minister of Defense and, and on the U.S. side, it's through the Secretaries of State and Defense. But having especially those politically contentious conversations that need to be discussed between the two allies, but outside of the political and media spotlight. So I I can imagine, you know, some of the conversations in the past have been about uh, ballistic missile defense. I'm sure there are many conversations now about how we are going to defend against new threats, especially things like modernizing NORAD and the North Warning System. And so I think that appreciation for how important it is to be able to speak offline, we as academics always want evidence, we want reports, things we can pour over. But here's an example where that would jeopardize the momentum that this group has in trying to advise the government on always pushing forward for defense of North America. And so I guess the question right now is that with Donald Trump sort of blowing everything up that he sees, it sounds like it's handy to have this institution that has always operated out of the limelight. I guess the reason why this is important now is that I was at a conference by one of the CDSN's partners, the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, had an event on modernizing North American uh, defenses. Mm -hmm. And this is part of a larger thing that was in the mandate letter that Trudeau issued to Saijan about spending more money on modernizing the northern warning systems. And so I guess the question right now is, is this a really good time to be having that discussion because Trump is still president and right now we pay 40% of the cost and he might want us to pay either 50 or 100% of the cost. So is duck and cover really viable at this point in time in terms of how to manage this particular issue? Well, I think there are a couple of issues there. First of all, Trump is not unique in insisting that Canada ensure that they pay their quote unquote fair share to defend North America. I would say that Trump is definitely more brash, vocal, and <laughs> outspoken. But this is not new. I mean, we Canada had pressure uh, from Clinton, from Obama. The difference is in the past, we didn't have the sorts of threats we're facing now. And so we could agree to disagree and sort of move on. Now we have a combination of a very vocal U.S. president that is not uh, shy about expressing his displeasure. And we have rising Russia, rising China, hypersonic vehicle weapons. We have disturbers in Iran and North Korea. We have hybrid tactics to try and foment discord among societies. So we have all of these new threats that are now increasing in scale and scope, coupled with this brash president. So it it seems as if this is brand new, but this is an ongoing conversation. And so this is where I think the PGBD is especially important because they can have those heart to hearts. One of the things that would really benefit Canada is, okay, the United States, you keep saying spend more money. But it would be really helpful if you could pinpoint for us exactly what you need us to spend money on. Because going to the Canadian public and saying we need more money on defense is not very helpful. And it might very well be that in upgrading, modernizing the North Warning System, the U.S. actually doesn't need us to put money into 
to that, that we can put money elsewhere. And then when you do the final accounting for everything that goes into defending North America, it'll work out in the in the wash. So getting very, very focused on specific projects and specific amounts of money may actually hamstring us to being a bit more inventive about, well, how do we look at this thing called North America as a whole? And that's also the advantage that we have in a NORAD commander whose mandate it is, is to think North America and not just think U.S. or think Canada. I guess the question right now is, we hear about all of these great threats facing us. I tend to be an Arctic security skeptic, which is I don't think we're that endangered, or at least the changes in technology are not changing things that much. So for instance, when I hear about hypersonic missiles, my first reaction is, okay, we get to die faster, but we're, we die either way because I'm not that confident that ballistic missile defenses will work and that they're probably easier to subvert than they are to uh, keep up to date against whatever the adversaries are planning. Mm-hmm. So what's your take on how, how threatened we should be and whether there's anything we could do about it? Well, that's a good question. On the one hand, it's true that both militaries are saying that the likelihood of a direct military attack, especially by China or Russia against North America and specifically because of the Arctic, is still very, very slim. The more likely scenario is that we have either accidents, incidents elsewhere that requires adversaries to escalate, thereby hitting us presumably in the Arctic to deflect from issues elsewhere. Or we have miscalculations. And especially on the miscalculations, that's where we're getting more nervous. And so that's why then the call for having things like an upgraded North warning system, because it really is about providing us information for a common operating picture of what's happening in the airspace above North America. But to the second point about do we need to spend this kind of money because, as you say, hypersonic vehicles are highly destructive. This is where, of course, the Department of Defense on both sides of the border are mandated to provide deterrence. And for deterrence, you need persistent and consistent policies, plans, doctrines, and gear and kit that forces everybody in the world to take that split second thinking before they do try and use us as a target. Let me me jump in for that for a second, which is deterrence is, in my mind, not so much about whether you can stop the thing from hitting you, but it's about whether you can inflict pain upon them after you've been hit. I guess the question for me is, is I understand investing more in sensing stuff going on in the Arctic, being able to attribute where the stuff is coming from. But I worry about ballistic missile defenses being a, a money pit because it doesn't really change our ability or the fact that we're going to get harmed. And so isn't it really the focus should be on we rely on the United States anyway, being able to retaliate. The reason why I raised this is because uh, when I was at this conference a couple of days ago, one of the Americans kept on talking about in order to deter, you need to defeat. Mind. Deter, detect. In order to deter, you need to defeat. In order to defeat, you need to detect. And I found that very puzzling because I thought in order to deter, you need to hit the other side, not that you need to defeat the thing coming at you. Those are two different dynamics. Now, if we want to say we want to defeat everything heading our way, that's one thing. If you want to say we want to defeat the random North Korean missile, which is different than than blocking a thousand Soviet or sorry Russian warheads, that's something different entirely. The idea of depending on defense is different than depending on deterrence. You don't need to defeat in order to deter, I guess is the thing I'm raising. Well, in some cases you do, and it really depends on the adversary and the tactics you want to achieve and the end objective you want to achieve. But if we go back to this idea that you need to be able to detect first, that is why there's so much attention on the North Warning system, because it is 
just, I mean, this is uh, a system that was created in 1985, two years after the Commodore 64 was launched into the world. I don't know about you, but I don't want to write an essay on a Commodore 64, and I don't think I want that kind of technology providing really important information, not just about potential military threats, but for example, civilian aircrafts that are increasingly flying over the Arctic because over the poles is, is a much shorter uh, transportation mm -hmm. route. And we, if we are going to then add things like drones, maybe LIDAR, all sorts of other stuff in the Arctic airspace, we need to deconflict. Now, I know the Canadian Arctic is very, very large, and so, you know, it's less likely things will crash, but not knowing what is up there is problematic. And it's, you know, one of the primary responsibilities of governments generally is to, to be able to say, we need to have a handle on what's happening in our sovereign's airspace, maritime space, etc. So that's why the, there is a connection to the North Warning System, mm -hmm. and then to, you know, the ideas about uh, defeating and deterring. There's also, of course, we need new interceptors. That's Very a different long. thing entirely. Yeah, we need those. But then to ballistic missile defense, you're right on the one hand, uh, maybe that ship has sailed because now with new technology, the current ground-based mid-course ballistic missile defense system probably isn't very effective. And really, it's oriented for North Korea. It's not oriented for missiles coming from other directions. So on your one hand, you're right. Why spend the money if it's not going to be able to defeat current threats? On the other hand, too, it's the principle of are we allies? Are we defending North America jointly or not? And so it's that optic side that can also be really damaging to the Canada-US relationship and is another area for adversaries to exploit and encourage that disconnect between Canada and the US. Mm -hmm. Okay, I guess that's fair. <laughs> I guess no, I, I think you're persuasive. I think I think you're right. Oh, thanks. I, I, I'm still very much a BMD skeptic. Although I guess that that raises the next question, which is, what are the complications that Canada currently has for not being involved in American ballistic missile defense? And would you recommend that we join their program, despite all the baggage of the past? Well, I think this is where, you know, again, going back to the PJBD, this is where they can have those really frank discussions. And it might be that the U.S. says, listen, ballistic missile defense, it would have been nice. Yes, we're irritated. But right now, the more important thing is that we have a solution on the North Warning System because we need to be able to detect. And therefore, let's put that system aside for now and concentrate on these other things. But that's why, you know, again, that Permanent Joint Board on Defense it is so important. It's only Canadians and Americans in the room. The co-chairs are chosen because they are very skilled negotiators and they have the ears of the prime minister and president if necessary. It's a fairly small group. But the other aspect is we also have things like the military cooperation committee. I always forget the other C, the MCC. Yeah, the military cooperation committee. We have Canada, U.S. ministerials. We have the binational planning group where you have technocrats that can really get down to that. Well, how are we going to do this? What kind of capabilities do we need in a North Warning system? If 
we finally agree that, yes, we need to be protected, for example, by an Iron Dome or something like that, then how is it that Canada will or will not participate and in what form? I think the good news is that everybody now knows what NORAD is. They're still a little bit fuzzy about the three missions, but they they value NORAD, realize it's important. People are starting to rediscover the Permanent Joint Board on Defense, and that's good because these institutions, if marginalized, are easily disappeared. And now when you look at the 360-degree global scope of threats coming at us, we need to be aware not only of the away game, which we have spent a lot of time and energy on, but defending the homeland. And now you're seeing greater attention to how NATO and NORAD work together. And I could see in a few years having a conversation about actually opening up who are the partners in NORAD and including Greenland, Denmark, Norway, because the focus is really shifting to the GIUK gap and the North Atlantic. Well, you're a much more optimist about these things than than most of the people, because a lot of these things are very, very difficult politically. Canada has been resistant to having NATO deal with the Arctic. It would prefer to just keep it being uh, in the Arctic Council, and it doesn't want to get anybody else involved. It seems like kind of sort of a jealous mistress and doesn't want anybody else to, to get involved besides the United States and Russia, essentially. So do you see there being any room for Canada being more welcoming of other players? Or is it just a matter of accepting the reality that we're stuck with having other players? No, it's really interesting you say that because in Strong, Secure and Engaged, point, I think it was 110, opened the door to having more NATO, and they I think they referenced it as more exercises, but they actually did open the door to recognizing that NATO was going to be playing a role in the Arctic. Now, I think in the drafter's mind of SSE, they were thinking North Atlantic. But for example, you note the second in command and the new second fleet, which has just been stood up, and that's their primary area of remit. The second in command is a Canadian. So we're already getting this by stealth. And I think at the end of the day, the military are key advisors. If they're saying we need to maybe shift our thinking in terms of who's operating in the Arctic, we can have those conversations. There's also ways we can do exercises that, of course, we invite Russia to be an observer and in some cases even to play a role. The the old way of thinking of Russia is bad and therefore NATO should stay out of the Arctic so we don't uh, provoke them. Everybody's starting to rethink that because we have some clear interests that align in the Arctic with Russia. There are other places where the Arctic is a tool of rhetoric that can be exploited for both sides. And so maybe we need to do things like reinvite Russia back to some of these Arctic uh, security working groups and the like, so that we have a more frank and open discussion. I think, and I, I think you're uh, a little optimistic about the politics of this, because Russia is, is still mucking about in all of our allies' domestic politics. And I, I think Russia, it's going to take a long time for Russia to be able to be considered to be a, a normal player. But I guess the Arctic is one of those places that are exceptional. The other thing uh, Russia and NATO has in common is concerns about China. China has designs on Arctic, and that can sharpen minds. We also never thought but, that... Is that realistic? We, we, we never thought Nixon would go to China. It's one thing about Nixon going to China. It's another thing about the Chinese Navy showing up in the Arctic in any kind of real kind of way. I mean, what what is the threat of the Chinese in the Arctic? Well, many. I mean, they do have a lot of capabilities. 
intentions, that's what's opaque. We're not sure. And so the, the more we know that as NATO allies, we can exercise together. I mean, the one thing that Trident Juncture showed us, we were a little rusty. NATO coming together in a big exercise like that, especially in the Arctic, it was a little rusty. We need okay. to do this more. And we also need to have more strategic level exercises. We're very good with the tactical exercises, but sustaining these uh, large strategic exercises with a particular message to both Russia and China that we need to practice. I guess for me, I've always thought that the, the Chinese threat in the Arctic is, is exaggerated because yes, they have capabilities, but getting those capabilities in the Arctic and sustaining them are, are very, very difficult. And it's fairly easy to choke off the Chinese access to the Arctic because they either have to go around Alaska, which is a very narrow strait, or they have to go all the way around Africa to go through the, the gap that we've been defending from the Russians for so long, so we just have to turn our focus and look the other way. The problem is we haven't been, we turned our attention away from many of these routine things which we used to do. For example, when we when we lost the Sackland position, we're now realizing, and this is why the Second Fleet has been reconstituted, we are not paying attention to that area in the GIUK gap like we were before. And the, okay. you know, the U.S. has realized that they've allowed their Arctic capabilities to atrophy. And so this is all part of the, they're going to need to do this with allies because the, the U.S. is a, the laggard when it comes to Arctic capabilities in many cases. Well, I guess the problem is, is that Bree's got lots and lots of priorities and how do you fund them all remains a, a serious question. That's the rub. What are you working on these days? So I'm uh, fortunate that my colleague Jim Ferguson and I are finishing up a manuscript on NORAD and continuing on where Joseph Jockel sort of left off. When the NORAD agreement was signed in perpetuity in 2006 and a new maritime warning mission was added, a lot of really interesting things have happened to NORAD, including thinking about how to change command and control. And so this book is going to trace the really that decision in 2006 onward to see how NORAD has changed and what may come in the future, including new missions in new domains and new partners. The other thing we're doing is, again, getting more insight into the PJBD. Uh, uh, the co-chairs, Lieutenant General Retired Chris Miller and Honorable Mr. John McKay, were really supportive uh, of the working group initiative that we we had down in Washington, D.C., and they are looking for ways to give academics especially more insight into how they operate, the types of issues that they're wrestling with. And so I'm really hoping to see perhaps in the future a communique that may come out of that uh, the PJBD so that we have sort of a legacy of decisions made, perhaps not that starkly, but we can sort of trace the evolution of thinking vis-a-vis -vis North American defense. But if they issue a communique, then they will no longer be so hidden and quiet. That is the trade-off. And so they're wondering uh, how they can do that. But I mean, there's there are issues that that we can pr probably guess at that will be on there in their inbox. Mm -hmm. And certainly NATO, for example, has lots of very sensitive conversations. So I'm sure there is there is some way that this can be done. It's just never been done in the in the past, so they need to think through what would be the ramifications. I really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk to us. It is clearly a priority of this government, as it was in the mandate letter. So it's really good that you're out there on the frontier pushing uh, these research agendas, because I think this is going to be very important, obviously, for the, not just for the next five years, but for the next 20, 30 years, because uh, the Chinese, the Russians, and 
the other threats aren't going away. Thank you. Can I make a plug for uh, everybody to mark their calendars for next January 27th and 28th, 2021? Because as part of the <laughs> operations group, one of the things we're going to be doing is hosting a conference on post 9-11 and the defense of North America things is it's 20 years since 9-11. And because North America defense is now uh, an increasing priority, we're going to put the two topics together. Fantastic. I really appreciate that. Uh, we'll be looking forward to that event next year. Well, we'll have you back next year to talk about it. Thanks again, Andrea. And thanks for everything you do for the CDSN. Because this has been a pretty depressing episode thus far, I'm curious as to if there's one thing you've done uh, in the past week or two that that's changed your own domestic battle rhythm to thing you've uh, yeah one thing you've done in the past week or two that's made things a little easier for you that you that you've had some fun with that gives you a bit of a lighter side to the to what's going on. The Easter break has really helped our family because it's just been an opportunity for us to express our gratitude when it comes to our own health and and being together and with the kids. We painted some some Easter eggs so it was nice to tap into that artistic side <laughs> and and you have an artistic side i saw a picture of those eggs i was most impressed whenever i did easter eggs they were just to be a mass of like brown because that's what happens when four different colors meet yeah and we did have uh, only brown eggs to to play with so that creates a, a dying challenge um dying meaning using different colors <laughs> to dye our eggs. But yeah, the, the kids deserve uh, most of the credit for that. And maybe you've noticed some of your favorite movie characters in there, like uh, Pigeon Toady from the movie Starks. Have you seen that movie? No, I have not. It's, it's great. There's Pigeon Toady kind of a... Uh, misfits within the Storks organization and uh, he's he's really funny but I, I don't want to do any spoiler alerts if you <laughs> if you intend on watching Storks it, it's so good gotta tell you it's not at the top of my agenda although my wife and I did watch Frozen 2 last week oh uh, yeah um, I saw and, your review on on Twitter yeah and onward the week I before think. that so we, we, we got Disney Plus mostly for the Star Wars content, mm -hmm. uh, and I have been catching up on Clone Wars, but because it's very good for using the treadmill. I watch an episode and a half of, of Clone Wars while I'm exercising, but uh, it also means access to all the Pixar and Disney stuff. So we, we watched Onward, which was the new Pixar movie. I thought it was pretty good, but not as good as a lot of the Pixar movies. And we watched Frozen 2, and the funny thing about Frozen 2 is I think I liked the story of Frozen 2 better, but I definitely like the music of Frozen 1 better. <laughs> That's good. And, and so what about you? What have you done in the past? week or two weeks that have maybe changed your battle rhythm for the better? Well, it's been hard finding flour, but you can find baking mixes. So I did buy my favorite blondie mix, which creates brownies that taste like chocolate chip cookies. Mm -hmm. And I've long had an addiction to chocolate chip cookies. So I did make those this weekend and there's a few left and I'll have one with lunch today. I haven't done a lot of baking besides my weekly pizza. I've done a lot of cooking, but I haven't done a lot of baking. We'll see how successful my Costco visit is today. If I can find flour, then then you'll see me making focaccia bread and all kinds of other things. Although I don't think I'll join the sourdough brigade. I don't think I'll be going to Costco at all during this entire <laughs> lockdown. I just, the idea of standing in line and waiting my turn to get into Costco is the most frightening.
gardening thing right now. Fair enough. Delivering groceries uh, is is what I'm after. Like uh, in in Kingston, it's not so bad. You can you can get food delivered to your house pretty easily. I think it's harder in bigger cities. There's long wait times for those deliveries, but I'm not going to Costco. That's for sure. That's what I got the bandanas for now. That I'm not playing ultimate these days. That's true. But uh, aren't you injured anyway? Yeah, uh, this is true. I got a hamstring injury right before the the lockdown, and so I picked the best time to have a, a frisbee injury uh, since I'm not really missing out on the ultimate right now. So this is a good opportunity for you to do a little self-care and to make sure <laughs> you properly recover and you do your physio exercises and you strengthen your muscles so that you're back at it when this is all over and you can rejoin your team. Yes, mom. <laughs> That's good. One of the new things we're going to do here in our time of pandemic and of self-isolation is presenting a little R&R, rest and relaxation, movies and TV and other stuff that might be good distractions. Uh, so for this week, I'd recommend Netflix's The Letter to the King. It's a fantasy series of six episodes, just teenage boy who gets a mission way above his uh, pay grade. And it involves magic, it involves some good action, it's a little slow to start, but it, it, it becomes pretty grippy. And there's some t- surprises along the way and some humor. So uh, that's what I recommend on, on Netflix. One of my sisters recommended The Escape Artists, a band of daredevil pilots and the greatest prison break of the Great War. I didn't know there was a great, uh, the great escape of World War I. And so I'm halfway through this book, and it is about uh, a bunch of POWs who try to tunnel out of a German prison of war camp. It includes British and Canadian officers. And so I recommend Escape Artists by Neil Bascom. Uh, the other book series I'll mention is is the Lee Child's Jack Reacher series. Uh, each book is a, a, a thick 400 or so page thriller. And the action is good. There's some humor involved. And they're just very gripping. And it's a good way to pass the time. Uh, and you'll find, if you read the series, why Tom Cruise is so woefully miscast in the series. Because Jack Reacher is a big, scary dude. Anyhow, so those are my recommendations for this week. I uh, hope you have a good couple of weeks um, staying healthy, washing your hands, self-isolating, staying at home, and getting through this thing. Good luck. We'd like to hear your questions and your comments, and so please send them to us at Twitter address at CDSNRCDS, or email them to cdsn.rcds.outlook.com. Thank you.